and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a determined young chef talking about early 20s successes and how he's cooking up next-generation Mexican food with his dad, in Dallas. He is an award-winning chef, restaurateur, entrepreneur, and Food Network hotlister. It's Julian Rodarte. Julian, welcome to Food Network Obsessed and congratulations on making the 2023 Food Network hot list. What was your reaction when you found out? It was kind of surreal, you know, growing up, used to watch Food Network all the time and, you know, always dreamed of one day at least, you know, being recognized in some way, shape or form. So I can definitely say it was a dream come true in many ways. So it's really cool. Well, congratulations again. And I want to kind of take it back so we can kind of figure out how you got to this point of all of these accolades and recognitions. I know you opened your first restaurant with your dad, Beto and son at just 23. And you've been a finalist for Food and Wines 30 Under 30. You are a CEO of Trinity Restaurant Groups. To what do you credit this success at such an early age? You know, I I think it's a combination of things. Obviously, having a father who's a chef, you know, really, you know, helped me because I felt like I was just born into the industry. I mean, I was born when he opened his first restaurant 30, almost 30 years ago. And so I think that's a a big piece to it. of just kind of being born into it, being really raised and kind of molded in the industry, whether he wanted me to be in it or not. And then I think the second thing is just, you know, from the time I was like 14 years old, I really just knew this is what I wanted to do. I just had a passion for it and knew that at the end of the day, I I love to cook. I love the restaurant. And so I just pursued it from the time I was 14. So, you know, to think of it almost 10 years later, opening a restaurant after being in the industry for about 10 years. But again, truly, really just being grown up in it. It didn't feel like I was that young just because I had already been in it for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, speaking of which, you know, you mentioned you were born when he was opening his first restaurant. What do you remember about those times, you know, being in the restaurant with your dad cooking and running the whole place? Yeah, it's interesting because most kids, when they go into a restaurant, you know, all they ever see is the dining room. Mm. For me, it was very normal for me just to run into the kitchen and go find my dad. And, you know, I just felt like there was always a comfort about restaurants, you know, in the front of the house, in the back of the house that was just abnormal for any kid to have. And so I was always, you know, wanting to go in the back and just watch my dad at work, whether it be cleaning plates or or cooking a special or, or whatever that may be. And so, like, I think from a very, very, very young age, I just had this understanding and, and idea of the holistic view of what a restaurant was and seeing my dad as a chef, it kind of like was in my eyes, viewing my dad as almost a superhero who could do things that other people couldn't. And so I think, like you said, as a, as a kid, that was kind of my experience and, and what I uh, fell in love with at a very, very young age. Yeah. I mean, it's no surprise that that is what you wanted to do. You wanted to follow in his footsteps because it was just like this magical place for you. What was his reaction when you told him you wanted to get into the family business? Yeah, he was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he, he would always say like, look, I work hard in restaurants, so you don't have to like, you know, he, he worked in restaurants because it was what was available to him. So he mm-hmm. was born in Mexico, came to the States, and it was pretty much like you either go into construction, you know, you go into the fields, you know, whether it's picking onions or, or farming or you go into restaurants. And so of those three, it just yeah, he decided to go into restaurants. So again, it, for him, it, it wasn't like he did it at first because it was his passion. It was just because, you know, coming 
from Mexico. It's, it's what was available. Ultimately, it grew into his passion and he decided to pursue the career path as he got older. But, you know, for, for me in his eyes, he was like, man, you know, you can, you can go be a doctor. You can go be a <laughs> lawyer. You could be an engineer. Like there's so many different things. Like, you know, Julian, I had three options when I got here. You had like the, the world is your oyster. And he's like, and you really want to do what I did? So yeah, he was, he definitely wasn't, you know, happy at first, but you know, now we're very much living the both of our dreams, you know, together and doing it every day. And it's definitely become a, a very fulfilling thing that we both get to experience. How long did it take him to kind of come around? You know, there was like almost two parts to it. First part where he was like, okay, uh, like, he's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to sway him out of doing what he loves, but I'm not happy about it was kind of after that first night when I told him, I was like, Hey, you know, he, he had opened another restaurant of his and I had told him, I was like, dad, I want to be a chef just like you. This is when I was 14 years old. And after that first night of him being like, well, you want to be a chef dish pits that way. Um, (laughs) He handed me an apron. I'm just like, all right, you know, I guess this is, this is how it starts, you know? So I start washing dishes and, you know, he's like, Hey, scrub these floors, clean out the walk-in, you know, here the grates to the the hood, uh, the vent hood or whatever, clean this out too. And just trying to think of all the disgusting things he could, he could get me to to do just to try to scare me away. And afterwards he's like, you know, so you still want to be a chef, you know, it's hard work. Right. And I was like, dad, I love it. Like, can I come back? can do this all over tomorrow. And at that point he was like, okay, like, well, if he's willing to work hard, like I'm not going to push him to not work hard. But then when I went to culinary school and I think he really saw not just me, you know, enjoy being in the industry, but like start to kind of develop my own unique art form to what cooking is. Right. I think that's when it turned from being okay with it to being proud and being like, okay, Mm. this is, this is my boy is my son. He's following in my footsteps. He's finding his own voice, you know, in the industry and, and, you know, learning, you know, things and, and, you know, coming home and wanting to teach me. And, you know, so I think that's when he really transitioned from it just being something that he was okay with to something he was very proud of. You know, obviously you mentioned you went to culinary school. What things did you learn from your father that they can't teach in culinary school? And what are some things you learned in culinary school that you didn't learn, you know, in all those years growing up? In culinary school, really what what you learn is, you know, how to be a classically French trained chef. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people say, oh, you know, classically trained French, blah, blah, blah. And there's not a lot of a lot of meaning or depth, you know, to to what that uh, actually translates into. But basically, I mean, you learn the foundations, you learn how to make sauces and stocks and how to break down, you know, a cow or a pig or a, a lamb, you know, all those different things, a fish. And so a lot of that stuff, you know, when, when my dad's buying, you know, tuna or salmon from the grocery store, a lot of times it's coming in, you know, just individual fillets, you know, but when you're in culinary school, you got the whole fish and they're like, all right, <laughs> like we're going to, we're going to literally take this from a whole fish to the individual fillets that you buy at the store. So a lot of it was just kind of that big picture stuff of like, mm-hmm. before it gets to you in your home or in even the grocery store, what does that actually look like? You know, what are those, you know, plants or, or proteins, you know, where do they start out and how do you get it down to what you need? So that's the culinary aspect of what you learn in school. But I think from what my dad taught me is how to be a businessman. Because I think, you know, being a chef, you learn how to cook and and how to create menus and, and, you know, plates and, and that kind of thing. But when it comes to the restaurant industry, it's very difficult because you got to actually make money off of those plates. You have to, you know, learn how to balance the books. And he was always very entrepreneurial. You know, he, he came to the United States and with that American dream. And so he really taught me the business aspect of like, look, it's one thing to make good food, but how do you make money off of that good food? How do you create a lifestyle for yourself, your family? And that's ultimately what I think he helped, you know, kind of give me that vision of how to take, you know, not just a plate, but turn it into an experience, a menu, a dining room, a restaurant that's an actual 
fiscally responsible business. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing that you learned how to cook? So when I was growing up, my my mom didn't like to cook as much. You know, she would cook a few things. She grew up in New York. So, you know, she made Italian food a lot and chicken parmesan, lasagna, that kind of thing. But when it came to where I started was because my mom was like, look, if you want hot food, you know, or a hot meal, then wait for your dad to get home. I'll make you a peanut butter jelly sandwich or a ham and cheese sandwich, <laughs> you know, but she's like, I'm not trying to cook right now. So I was like, well, shoot, I, I'm not trying to eat a cold peanut butter and jelly or ham and cheese. So I guess I'll make my own thing. So the first thing I, I did was actually I made a grilled cheese. That was the first okay. thing I ever cooked on my own. I was probably eight or nine at the time and just being spoiled rotten by my dad, who's just always cooking. I mean, every night, even after he'd leave the restaurant, he would come home and he would cook for us. And, you know, just the guy just loves to cook. I mean, is his every every day he wakes up in the morning thinking about what he's going to make that day. And so it doesn't matter if he had just worked a 12 hour shift at the restaurant. He was coming home and he was cooking for his family. And so I just fell in love with, you know, everything that he would always create and honestly got really spoiled by his cooking. <laughs> and so finally, I was like, well, I guess if I want to eat this way all the time, then I'm going to have to learn how to cook myself, too. How would you describe kind of your approach to food and flavor and which experiences do you think kind of influence that the most? Yeah, I, I would say there's a couple of things. One of the things that influences it is just growing up, you know, just what the people that cooked for me, my abuelita, my dad's mom, who, you know, just used to cook some of the most authentic, you know, just good home cooked Mexican meals, you know, stuff that she grew up eating from her grandmother and her mother. And then, you know, just kind of like getting getting to be the benefactor of, of that culture that I got to experience at a very young age. And then obviously my father as well. So I think a lot of what if, what influences my cooking and, and hopefully it doesn't sound too cliche, but it's it's just family. It's, it's mm -hmm. what we grew up eating as comfort food. And a lot of those were bold, spicy, you know, spice packed foods and, and dishes that made a lot of other things just feel bland when it wasn't my family's cooking mm. because of how spice filled and, and just, you know, when it comes to Mexican cooking, we're toasting chilies, right? And we're, we're grinding our own spices that have been toasted and with mortar and pestle and uh, all those different things, right? And so when you don't have those experiences, you're like, man, you start to crave that. You start to crave those big, bold, passionate flavors, that, if you will. And so that's one piece I would say that really kind of tailored, I guess, where my cuisine comes from. But I think a, a second piece is experiences. I realized that in every dish that I craved and enjoyed, there was an experience to it. And we talk about the nostalgia of why we enjoy what we eat. What, what are the fragrances and the aromas? You know, what, what was the music that was playing or the song that was playing at the time? And all those other things that a lot a lot of times we focus on taste and presentation, but there's so many more factors that make up those experiences that we have. And so everything that I do, I just try to create an experience that goes beyond the plate. And I think ultimately that's what really creates those memorable moments that we know and love. I know after culinary school, you actually worked in the corporate culinary industry for a little bit as a research and development chef, creating soups, sauces, dressings for some well-known restaurant chains. What did you enjoy most about that time in your career? You know, what I loved most about that was I got to dip my toes in so many different restaurants and menus and, and brands. You know, a lot of times as a chef, you you work at one place and it becomes a little repetitive. And, and as creatives, you know, a lot of times we can kind of be our own worst enemy sometimes where, you know, we have a menu and a month later we're sick of it and that's what everybody's coming for. But like we're ready to <laughs> scrap it and move the next thing. When I was doing that, what I loved is one moment I'm making a dressing for payway, but then the following week, 
I'm working on a soup for Panera Bread. And then uh, in a month, I've got burger ideation that I'm doing for Wendy's or, you know, and all these other brands. So it was always something new. It was always something that I was getting to just keep those creative juices going. And that was, was my favorite part of that. And then also being able to travel across the country to go to these different headquarters all throughout the United States, meet these chefs and, and hear about their passion for the brands that they worked for and what was the, the DNA of their culture from a kitchen aspect. And then all those kitchens operate very differently. The way a, a payway is set up with all the different walks was super different than what Wendy's kitchen looks like, obviously. And then a Panera bread and everything in between. So it was like, it was almost like trying to solve a puzzle every time because it's like, these are the equipment you have and you can only use this equipment. So when you're developing these dishes and these recipes, like you have to make sure that it fits in each one of these kitchens. And ultimately now where I'm taking over different restaurants and a lot of them are second gen spaces, it's like, here's your kitchen. What can you do in it? That just prepared me for the time that I'm in now. Yeah. I mean, what considerations do you have to make when you're creating something for, like you said, multiple, even hundreds of locations versus maybe just one or two? First and foremost, safety was was number one as far as when we create a sauce or a soup or a dressing. And again, like you said, it's going to hundreds of locations all throughout the United States. You know, safety was first and foremost. We had to make sure that we were hitting all these different, you know, health points when it comes to the things that we were creating. Because again, uh, you know, you you see on the news all these time these outbreaks in different restaurants and in different chains. So mm-hmm. everything that we did had to be, you know, above board, if you will. But then the second thing was just like, you know, we're not feeding one demographic of people like when in my restaurants, I'm in a certain neighborhood. Right. And so I know kind of who my niche is and who I'm cooking for. Well, with this, it's we're cooking for the entire United States. Like everyone is our our demographic and our, our neighbor because of all the different places that this is. So we had to really kind of focus on what is universally going to take off. And that adds another layer of difficulty when you're talking about the United States as a whole, as opposed to just one neighborhood or one city or, you know, even one state. Aside from making sure, obviously, you know, the the equipment is uniform, that the safety protocols have been met. What does that testing process look like? When you are developing, like, say, a new soup recipe or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a long and tedious process because a lot of times once you get the the green light from the chefs on the corporate side of the brand that you're developing for, now you have to basically do it over and over and over again in, in batches that are thousands and thousands of gallons sizes and make sure that you can replicate it every single time. Because a lot of times we think of sauces and and dressings in a restaurant, we think about, you know, portions or even just a gallon, but we were, we were making hundreds of gallons of batches at a time. And so there's so much room for error because whereas we're used to having maybe one cook prep, one recipe, we had at least probably 25 different people touching a recipe when we're making these batches that take almost a day sometimes Mm -hmm. to create just this hundreds and hundreds of gallon of batch. So it was a lot of repetition. It was a lot of, you know, making sure that we could be consistent. And then also, again, just vetting every single one of those people that are going to touch that recipe and making sure that they had the right practices, not just from a culinary aspect, but also from a safety aspect. And so a lot of times you don't see your sauce actually go into the restaurant level till like a year later. We develop something. We're like, okay, we got the green light, but it's like 12 months of us getting it right them approving, you know, batch after batch after batch, and then it going to a couple test stores and key markets throughout the United States, getting the approval there, seeing the product move. And then hopefully 12 months later, you're producing it on a massive scale to the entire United States. 
Wow, that's super interesting to know like how long and how much work goes into each of those menu items a lot of times. How did these experiences help you when you were starting to develop your own signature restaurant menu? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is I got to do so many like development and, and, and just research testing. I got to be a part of so many different panels of people throughout the United States of telling us what they liked and what they didn't like and what, what, what their palate was. So I just got to consume so much information, so much data, so much feedback from people from all across the United States, you know, just kind of telling us where they felt there were gaps in, in the market from a food aspect or where they felt they were being underserved with certain flavor profiles. And so I just got to just consume so much information, so much data. And that really, I think, helped me just get a leg up on the individual who maybe doesn't get to have that information or, or doesn't only gets to work in, in one place and experience one thing. It really made me focus on the consumer and hyper focus on the consumer as opposed to what maybe I as a chef wanted people to eat. But I think there's a good balance of chefs taking what is organic and familiar and home to them and also being able to understand and how to translate that to the consumer in a way that it is palatable to them and something that they will, you know, again, want to crave and come back to over and over and over again. What was the inspiration behind your first restaurant, Beto and Son? And, and, and what did you want to do differently in Dallas at that restaurant? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in Dallas and in, in Texas, you know, the last thing it needed was another Mexican restaurant. I'll start right there. <laughs> um, I, I would disagree with that. <laughs> OK, all right. Well, I'm glad <laughs> you can never have enough. <laughs> I completely. Well, so I miss so, it a lot in New York. So, <laughs> OK, I got you. I got you. Uh, did you spend some time in Texas? Not in Texas, but okay. in California. So, okay. yeah, I was spoiled over there. Yeah. 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 So, well, I, I, I love people like you because uh, that's you're you're the you're the perfect person. I'm the target audience. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> You know, but really, I mean, like, like we're saying, there's so many Mexican places. And sure. so what, what I didn't want it to be was feel like I didn't want somebody to go there and feel like, oh, this reminds me of, you know, that other spot in town. Mm-hmm. And one of the unique things about where we're located at Trinity Groves is it's very much, much a destination. It's not downtown. It's, it's right outside the downtown city kind of like area. And so what we had to do was kind of convince people almost like we're Trinity Grove is almost kind of like Brooklyn. It's, it's just right outside. It's right in the, across the bridge, not super far, but at the end of the day, like we have to convince people that are in the city to kind of come outside mm-hmm. of the city and cross the bridge that we're across from. And so when we were thinking of the menu and, and thinking of the restaurant and how we wanted it to be, it was, it was kind of two things. The first thing that we realized is we have to look at this restaurant as a stage and we are putting ourselves on display as performers every single night. And we are trying to attract audiences that are either at other restaurants or at another place in the city to come and see our show or come to our show and experience what we have to offer. And so that was the first piece of when we created the Mexican restaurant, Beto and Son, what we wanted to achieve was just the overall experience. But the second thing was, is when I was growing up, Cooking for people was was one of our favorite things to do. Like a lot of Latin families, you would invite all the family over, invite all the friends. Music's on, drinks are flowing. The 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 parrilla, the grill is is, is hot and smoking, and and you're you're serving every every time somebody would come over. My dad would always tell me when somebody comes over to your house, you ask them what they want to eat and what they want to drink, and it was funny because he was almost like molding me into this hospitality industry before you <laughs> realize it. But he was just trying to teach me good manners and that kind of sure. thing. But it was always. What do they want to eat? What do they want to drink? Once they're well, well fed and hydrated, then you go about doing, you know, whatever you want to do. But it's always about making sure that they are comfortable in that, in that moment. 
And so it really just felt like everything that we had ever done growing up with me and my dad of, you know, him cooking and maybe me making cocktails or, you know, picking the, the music that we were going to play. It really just felt like we were doing that, but for the whole city. And something that we kept hearing over and over and over from our guests is like, man, we just really feel at home. We really feel like every single one of the staff members is part of the family. And you all just kind of have that same mindset. And it's rare to go to a restaurant where you feel like everybody is just on that same wavelength, same vibe, same energy, and just has that same idea. But that's kind of what we were, we were trying to achieve and create when it came to Beto and Son. And you've kind of described it as like next gen Mexican food. What is that exactly? How do you define that? Yeah, I think two meanings to what next gen Mexican food means. The first meaning is it was from one generation to the next. It really started with my great grandmother, my dad's grandmother. She is kind of, I guess, the matriarch, if you will, of our culinary cooking in that they lived on a little farm in Durango grew their own vegetables, had their own goats and chickens. And so they were living that farm to table lifestyle before it was a trend in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's where my, my father grew up. And so she was always cooking for all of these kids and grandkids, you know, that she had on this farm. And so from one generation to the next, these recipes have been, have been kind of passed down from, from that farm and from that family. So that's the first piece of what next gen means is from our family. It's been generation to generation from my great grandmother to my grandmother to my father and now to myself. But the second meaning of it is, is just trying to take things that were authentic to us. So growing up, my daddy ate fideo, which is a roasted pasta kind of cooked in a chicken broth with tomatoes and onions and garlic and thinking about how do, how does that translate into at the time, millennial palates and now obviously Gen Z's. But how, how does that translate into what they want? Noodle bowls obviously are extremely popular. You have noodle houses popping up all over the place of people just putting different things with noodles. And so we wanted to take the, the fideo that a lot of times would be served as a side item in a restaurant like rice and beans, but like actually make it the star and make it its own item. And so that was kind of one of the other things of thinking about like, what is next generation Mexican food? It's not just the rest, the food and the, the recipes that have been passed down from generation to generation, but what is the evolution of that food and how does it translate from when it was my great grandmother's recipe to my particular recipe or my mm-hmm. father's recipe? That's awesome. And, and how, like, what's this, can you like name like another example of something that's like on the menu that has kind of evolved from, you know, from your grandmother's recipe to what you kind of call your own now? Yeah, I can think of if we're talking specifically like grandmother's recipe. I mean, we have this delicious, delicious barbacoa that we make. Mm. A lot of times barbacoa, you you roast it. It's a slow roast, you know, can be either in the earth or in in the oven. And uh, my dad growing up just eating these delicious chili peppers, he makes this guajillo, ancho, Mm -hmm. chipotle sauce that toast the peppers, hydrate them, boil them with different vegetables like garlic and onions and tomatoes, and just make this really rich pepper puree. And what we end up doing is kind of like rubbing the meat down with that really thick, you know, kind of pepper paste or whatever. And so then Mm -hmm. as it roasts, not only are you toasting the chilies again, but you know, all of those flavors are just bleeding, you know, into the, to the beef itself and then shredding it. And a lot of those things, again, my, my great grandmother growing these peppers on her farm and just having these things that they were drying themselves, you know, outside and then, you know, kind of just developing all those flavors. That's, that's another great thing that when it comes to taking something that that they had because it was what they grew and it was what they had available. And then realizing like, man, this is like really, really rich, these spices. Like, how do we take this and take other items and and, and combine it together and fuse it and just, you know, make it almost a, a mother sauce to our rest to our restaurant, if you will. 
I love that. I love that you can kind of see, you know, the the family recipes being passed out almost through through your menu and through your food. I know you mentioned beverages and you mentioned cocktails. Tell me about the famous award winning liquid nitrogen margarita. Yeah, well, and then this really is on topic with what next gen is, too, because, you know, here in Dallas, the the frozen margarita is very iconic for those that (laughs) For those that don't know, actually, the first frozen margarita machine was actually invented here in Dallas at Mariano. Oh, wow. Yeah, Mariano Martinez restaurant. Mariano Martinez is actually the inventor of the frozen margarita machine. And it's actually in the Smithsonian. You know, Julia Child's kitchen is there and his margarita machine. Oh, my there. gosh. I yeah, love that. Yeah, no. So here in Dallas, like the frozen margarita is, is not just a, a cocktail to us. It is something we're very proud of. And so when it came to Beto and San, again, going along those next gen lines, how do we take something that is iconic? and reimagine it. And so that's where the liquid nitrogen margarita kind of came into play. When I was in culinary school, I learned to play with liquid nitrogen. I would make ice cream with it in one of the restaurants at the school. And when we got the opportunity to open Beto and Son, I was like, man, we got to do something. And I knew liquid nitrogen was going to have a piece or a factor. And I just couldn't figure out what to do with it at first. And then I was like, man, I wonder if I can make a margarita with this. So for months, I just started tinkering and playing and trying different recipes And one of the things that I found fascinating is when you make a frozen margarita in particular, it requires kind of you to make it one of two ways. At home, a lot of people do it in a blender, right? You add Mm -hmm. ice, you add your liquor and your lime juice and everything. You blend it together and it's frozen per se. In a restaurant, you have frozen margarita machines, which again, you add all the liquid. You have to add water because that's what freezes. And then you have a frozen margarita. Well, what I found I did not like about those two processes is they both require water in some way, shape or form, Mm. water in the machine or ice in a blender with liquid nitrogen. It's negative 320 degrees. So you can actually freeze the alcohol that freezes at negative 150 degrees. So not only was I able to kind of create this experience of like right at the table, customizing it with different fresh fruit purees like mango or peach or strawberry, but I was able to take something that could be as simple as four ingredients, lime juice, tequila, orange liqueur and agave and freeze those four ingredients without having to add any water. So that when you had that first sip and that last sip, no matter how frozen or actual liquid it was, the flavor stayed the same and was consistent and it didn't water it down like in a traditional Mm -hmm. margarita when as it melts, it just waters down and waters down and waters down. So that's kind of the creation, the evolution and the thought process behind the liquid nitrogen margarita. I love that. It's also it also sounds like it's stronger, right? Which <laughs> yes, <laughs> get more get more bang for your buck. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of times people will order one and go, oh, wow, I don't need another one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how much is experimentation like that kind of crucial to your creative process? Oh, it's huge. And obviously this kind of goes back to my past where it was a lot of experimentation to, you know, develop things for different chefs and, and different restaurants and, and different, you know, groups of people. But experimentation is, is something I do every single day. I have a thought. I go to the restaurant. I execute on that thought. And 90% of the time, it does not come out the way I wanted it to. And so a lot of times it's not just like an idea and then roll it out to the guests. It's an idea. And then months and months and months of trial and error before it actually finally hits the menu and hits a, a guest. You know, it's a lot of, you know, hey, dad, what do you think of this? Trying it. He gives me his feedback. Hey, you know, mom or hey, wife, you know, all, all the different <laughs> people that I'm like t- having one of them taste before. And then it gets to the employees. And then, it, you know, it, there's almost like a trickle down effect of before an idea turns into a menu item. 
there's a, a long process that it has to get to. So research and, and that ability to tinker and develop things is, is a huge part of the process. And speaking of your other restaurants, you also own Lexi's and also Nitro Burger in Dallas. What do all of your concepts kind of have in common, especially from a customer experience perspective? Yeah, I think experience is is that piece. Every mm-hmm. every time we develop a concept, it's it's never just because like, oh, you know, well, it has good food and good drinks. I mean, to me, that's that's what gets you to the dance, if you will. But that doesn't, you know, make you stand out while you're there. So, you know, at Lexi's, it was kind of a brainchild of my wife's who we were out having drinks one night in San Antonio. And she was just like, man, I have this idea to create this like really feminine forward restaurant. She's like, I've got this Pinterest board of everything that I know and love. And then we kind of just started talking about like, well, what, what food translates into this type of restaurant and what drinks and what's the environment. And next thing I know, she's talking about this champagne vending machine and how it's going to have a big <laughs> piece of the restaurant. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking like a vending machine in a restaurant, like, like, maybe it's a restaurant. Why would you put a vending machine in it? But I just didn't have the vision that, that she had at the time. And one of the things that I'll say about our family is we're, we're crazy idea people. So a lot of times when it's one of us has an idea, we're like, listen, if, if you believe in it, we will get behind it. We might not understand it or see it at the time, but we will, we will get right behind it. And so I was, it was just one of those moments where I was like, well, let me figure out what's the standard operating procedures of a, of a vending machine in a restaurant from a front of the house standpoint. And we kind of put some stuff together. And next thing I know, the machine itself is going viral <laughs> uh, and everybody is wanting to use the machine and, and take pictures with the machine. And it very much kind of like catapulted that brand's success, like almost from the beginning, because of that thing that she had just thought in her mind of like, we're going to have this, this moment, this experience where you get this gold token and you put it in there. And then this perfectly chilled champagne bottle, little mini bottle comes out and, you know, the, 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 the server is going to pop it right there for you. And you're going to get your photo moment and all that just different things. So I would say experience is the one thing with all the different restaurants that it's not just, you know, hey, you're coming in to dine, you sit, you eat, you leave. Every single restaurant has something else to do there that is a little bit more, I guess, playful, if you will. Yeah. I think the lesson here is that your wife is always right. I think that's I think that's the main I, lesson. I, I will never disagree with that one. Trust me, that, that is 100 percent true. Wait, I need to know a little bit more about this because I love champagne. So okay. so basically so you, what, what happens? You walk into the restaurant and yeah. you decide that you want to do this and you go up. Like, how does it how does it all work? Yeah. So so when you walk into the restaurant, it's a, literally the first thing you see. So it, you, you walk right in and right against the wall is this big, just kind of floor floral piece with inset of this Moet Chandon champagne vending machine. And it has three different versions of Moet. It's got the true champagne, it's got a sparkling rosé, and then it has a sweet and sparkling rosé. So it has Mm. three different options for you to choose from. And so a lot of times what ends up happening, the guests come, they see it, they take their photo, and then they get escorted to their table by the host. Once you're at the table on the cocktail list, it says the Moet moment. And basically what it is, is it's you can, you buy the coin from the server, the server just puts it on the tab, And they bring out this gold coin on this gold plate, set it right in front of you. And then they say, hey, would you like to, you know, have your Moet moment now? Or is it something that you want to take home at the end of your meal? Most people want to have it immediately. So Mm -hmm. uh, the server walks them over, explains to them, hey, these are the three that we have. All you have to do is put the coin in, hit the number of which particular flavor you want, and it'll come right out. And so they do that. It comes out and it's these little 
personal kind of mini bottles. So one, it's more affordable. It's not like you're buying a hundred dollars champagne. I mean, mm-hmm. most of them are ranged from like 25 to 30 kind of dollars, depending on the bottle. But basically you get this little mini kind of bottle that's personal to yourself. So you can get one flavor. And if you're doing a girl's night, all of the other girls at your table can be like, oh, well, I want this flavor. I want this one. And then, you know, we have all these different kind of different coupe glasses or flutes. We have some copper coupes. So just different kind of just trying to make an experience of it, right? It's not mm-hmm. just about the machine or not just about the, 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 the champagne itself. It's about like all the different ways that you can experience and customize your experience to what you want as an individual. I love that. I mean, it's, it's very clear that, you, you know, the experience, like you said, is, is very important to everything you guys are doing and making sure that those customers, you know, have that same feeling that they come into your house and you're asking them what they want to eat and drink. Up next, we hear from Julian about facing skepticism in the industry and what it was like appearing on Beat Bobby Flay with his dad. You know, we talked a little bit about the at the top about just like, you know, your success and and how you've achieved it at, at such a young age. Have you faced any doubt or skepticism within the industry because of your age or has it been, you know, like open arms from everybody else. <laughs> I would love to say the latter, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, listen, when it, when it comes to, when it comes to the industry, listen, the industry is very cutthroat, but for good reason, there's a lot of great talent out there. There's mm-hmm. a lot of extremely talented chefs who have put in a lot of time, you know, into perfecting their craft and, you know, becoming these, these big time chefs that they are. So no, of course there was, there was tons of adversity, if you will. And there was tons of questioning. Even, even I remember when I was, opening Beto and Son. And we had this guy who was our partners that uh, were our, our investors in Beto and Son. They, they had an individual who was kind of helping oversee their investments, if you will. And I remember like right before opening night, he's like, listen, we know your dad knows what to do and how to make this restaurant work, but we're not sure about you. And it was just like, oh, shoot. Like, okay, that's, that's what a 23-year-old kid needs to hear before he opens his first restaurant, you know? Um, but I think it's, it's in those moments, right? Everybody's going to go through adversity. Everybody's going to have those, those times and those people that maybe either don't believe or, um, you know, have, have their doubts, right? But it's what you do in those moments that really, I think, defines not just that particular moment and, and what comes out of it, but you as an individual, right? And I, I know you you spent time in sports, right? How many times do you see those individuals that were doubted so much more and went through so much adversity because of their height, their weight, you know, where they came from or or what what that might be, right? But at the end of the day, those are usually the motivating factors that either define people or make people, people that you've never heard of, you know? And so I just always said, I never want to be too scared to take an opportunity because I never want that opportunity that I was too scared to take to be the defining moment in my life that would have bolstered me into, you know, what, what success is. Yeah, no, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think, I think it's those moments that really kind of make or break you, right? Like it's either going to motivate you and, and make you work that much harder to prove everybody wrong or, or like you said, the opposite. And then we've, you know, it's somebody that we'd never heard of. Kind of thing. I think it's also kind of a, a little bit of a, a competitive, you know, at, yes. you know spirit and that kind yes. of thing in play. And speaking of which, you've been popping up on Food Network more and more from competing on Beat Bobby Flay to creating a breakfast torta on Crack and Egg With for FoodNetwork.com. Let's talk Beat Bobby Flay first. What was it like to compete on the show with your dad? Yeah, you know, that was one of those dream come true moments because my dad had been watching, you know, even before it was Beat Bobby Flay, it was the Throwdown, Throwdown show. Yep. Yeah. 
And my dad was always like, oh, one day I want to be on Throwdown, you know, and then they kind of, I'm assuming it kind of discontinued that show and it, tra- it kind of transitioned into Beat Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, it was just always one of his dreams. Again, growing up, we really only TV we would ever watch was like sports or Food Network. Those were the only <laughs> two things that were ever playing Damn. at the house. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was a dream of mine, obviously, to always be on Food Network, but it was a dream of his to specifically compete against Bobby. And, and I knew for him, it was like, look, win or lose didn't matter. He just he wanted his shot. You know, he wanted his at bat moment. And so it was it was a dream come true to not just see him live that dream, but be a part of it with him and, and be there with him and, and be you know on the show and and compete against each other. So, you know, as competitive as I am wanting to face Bobby myself, I was just extremely excited as a as a son to see my father live out that dream of, you know, getting to beat me on the show and then go compete against Bobby. <laughs> what do you remember just about like, you know, walking into the studio and the green room and getting all your instructions? Like what, what was it like to kind of, you know, I guess, live that out yourself, but also, like you said, kind of watch your dad go through that process. Yeah. You know, I feel like if, if it had just been me on the show, I think I would have been a lot more nervous and a lot more, you know, anxious about it. But because for me, it was almost a win-win, like either I win and get to face Bobby or I lose and my dad gets to do this. So <laughs> for whatever reason, that just took all the nerves and, and anxious away. And I felt very like light on the show. I felt very like, you know, I could be myself. I could, you know, kind of go along with the playful banter that Bobby gives and that my dad gave and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, while the the lights and the cameras and the set itself is, is huge, you, I never realized how big that that mm-hmm. kitchen, you know, really is and that set is. But on the show, it, it just because of, like I said, knowing it was it was a win-win either way, I felt like I got to be myself and really just enjoy the moment. And I think that was the really biggest thing. I was just, I was living in the moment at that time on that stage, just going, look, you know, win, lose or draw, like this is, this is a, a dream come true for all of us. So that said, would you like a round two? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, now, now, I mean, look, I'm an extremely competitive person. I, I grew up playing sports my entire life. So yeah, I mean, looking now, you know, looking back or whatever, I would love to now do it for me mm-hmm. <laughs> and be like, all right, now, now I want my shot to really, you know, to, to go at Bobby and, and be like, all right, Bobby, let's, let's do this. Mono y mano. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like being comfortable in front of the camera is, is kind of necessary nowadays for chefs because like, you know, 20 years ago, that was like the opposite, right? hundred percent. I mean, look, we're, we're ambassadors of our food. We're ambassadors of our cultures, you know, we're ambassadors of our experiences. And so when it comes to, you know, being comfortable in front of the camera, I mean, what better way to, to market yourself, your experiences, your past, your family, whatever that is, what better way to, you know, reach the masses that ultimately as chefs, that's what we want to do, right? We, we want to cook for as many people as we possibly can. And so, yeah, being comfortable on camera, in my opinion, is, is something that is absolutely a, almost a requirement, if you will, as a chef or any creative individual that, that really wants their, their pieces, their work, their art form, you know, on display. It's just being, being your own, you know, marketing individual that is championing your brand and, and your body of work and, and history. You know, I 100% I think it's, it's very important. Well, you looked extremely comfortable on your episode of Crack an Egg With, where you made one of my favorite breakfast dishes, a breakfast torta, Love it. which I also saw is on the brunch menu at Beto and Son. What is the key to a good torta? Oh, the bread. Um, yeah. You know, ultimately, yeah. I mean, it's it's the bread. We, we, we live and die by it. And I mean... Look, when it comes to tortas, you know, your local panaderia is always the way to go. And so we actually have one 
literally down the street from our mm. restaurant. And so that's actually the torta kind of came on the menu because of what was available to us at where we're at located in our neighborhood. It was like literally there's a panaderia, which is a, a bakery, a Spanish mm-hmm. bakery, you know, really influenced by the French when they bought Mexico from the Spanish. Right. So the French come and they bring their their bakeries and their bread baking. And I mean, a torta is almost like a little mini baguette. And so that was, I think, the most important thing when it comes to a good torta is how you go about baking, you know, that bread is, you know, it has to be done fresh. We get ours fresh baked every single day, delivered to the restaurant, serve it. Next day, we're getting another fresh delivery because what we didn't serve, we're using to make capitotala bread pudding, which is another mm. recipe that my abuelita used to make. So it's basically, it's all about the bread. It's got to be the freshest of the fresh. No, I completely agree. I actually did a, a recipe a few months ago and I was, it was, a, it's a little bit harder to source. I feel like in New York, there are, you know, definitely pockets of places that have those bakeries, but I, I ended up going to a local, just like a local Mexican restaurant that had tortas nice. on the menu, but they, they were so confused. Like I was like, I just want to buy like a bunch of your bread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> right. Right. No, so, but I agree. I, I watched that again this morning and definitely made me crave one of those. So I might have uh-huh. to go seek that out. Thank soon. you. Well, next time you're in Dallas, you're gonna have to let me know so I can cook for you. Make okay. you one of those. I would love uh, that. Be, it would be a pleasure. All right. Well, well, what is next for you? Oh man. Next, hopefully, you know, obviously more opportunities to play with Food Network and, and, you know, get to do different things. I would say that's obviously, you know, one of my goals is, you know, just to expand, you know, and do more things like the crack and egg and, and like the, the beat Bobby Flay show, whatever, whatever that be, whether it be recipe based or competition based or, you know, really anything. But the other thing that for sure is restaurants I've working on currently right now, four new concepts that hopefully will all open this year. It's going to be tight, but have a one restaurant opening in the next 30 days and then about three more that I'm working on. So restaurants are just probably always going to be in my future as far as just opening more and more, creating new concepts, more experiences. So that's going to be one of the biggest things that is right now up in my future is just new restaurants. And like I said, hopefully getting to play with Food Network. Well, we hope to see you on our screens more soon as well. And we thank you so much for taking the time. We are going to finish off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question for you. All right. How how would your friends describe you? Ooh, friends describe me probably generous because I'm always cooking for them uh, and and using them as as my palates to to taste the food. And then loyal. I mean, I've a lot of my friends I've been friends with since I was a kid, you know, always kept up with. So love that quick snack your favorite quick snack yeah favorite quick snack you know in the restaurant obviously we're we're cooking all day for the people rarely do we get to eat for ourselves or whatever and one of the things that i guess just kind of growing up our always quick snack was just a quick snack was just a fresh tortillas and, and eggs just easy to crack an egg real quick saute it up get a tortilla you know whether that's with cheese or beans or avocado you know just easy to eat a, a little breakfast taco you know real quick on the on the fly Yum. Favorite thing about living in Dallas? Ooh, that one's easy. Okay. Favorite thing about living in Dallas, the dining scene. It's most people's complaint when they come to Dallas is that is all there is to do in Dallas to shop and to, to eat and drink. And I'm like, yeah, yes. what's the problem with that? <laughs> like, why are, you, why, are you phrasing the question like it's a problem? Like, yes, we eat, we drink. We're all about, you know, going out. So that's my favorite thing about Dallas is we're all about dining. So how do you stay organized? I have a real life Alexa. My (laughs) wife's name is Alexa and she's a very organized person. And so, yeah, she, the only reason I stay organized as a crazy creative mind is I have a wife who is 
very, very organized and, and keeps me making sure that I don't miss my appointments. All right. Lucky, lucky man. Uh, yes, very. Song you can stop listening to right now. Electric Feel. Okay. Yeah, it's a big one for me right now. That's a good one. Yeah. Most used app on your phone. Ooh, most used app on my phone. Oh, honestly, this is easy and it's restaurant related. It's the converter app going from like ounces, like the metric system and and back and forth. Like, you know, a lot of times I, depending on where I worked, some things were in the metric system and some things were, you know, just in ounces and in pounds. And so a lot of times I'm, you know, taking old recipes that I've done in the past, converting them over to whatever restaurant, you know, measurement system they're using. And so that would be definitely my number one used app for sure. All right. Well, I'm going to download that app because I usually just Google like ounces. To milliliter. I mean, that works yeah. too, but it, it's, it's the nice. Calculator to have. is just a lot easier to maneuver because otherwise yeah. you're like waiting for Google. It's like, come on, <laughs> come on. Like on the app, it's just boom, boom, boom. You know? All right. Good. Good to know. All right. Our final question is not rapid fire. You can take okay. as long as you want on this one. And that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day. So we want to hear what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. There are no rules. So you can travel time travel travel, spend as much money as you want, be served mm. by somebody who is living or not. Again, no rules. It's your perfect day. So yeah. how about it? So it would be a day with my abuelita, my grandmother, my dad's mom. She's no longer with us, but kind of before I, I guess I get into this full answer. When I was a child, like five, six, seven years old, she always told me I was going to be a chef. You know, mm. one day you're going to be a chef like your dad. You're going to be on TV. You're going to have your own restaurant. I mean, oh my she, I know she saw this happen <laughs> before. It was ever, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, she always was, was saying stuff. And you're just like, oh, it's your grandma. They're supposed to say sweet stuff like this, right? They're your number one fan. But she was always just saying these kind of things when I was growing up. And just before I was even cooking again, I was like five, six years old. And she said it throughout my whole life. But unfortunately, when I graduated culinary school, she passed away. So she never got to see see me on TV. She never got to see our restaurant that me and my dad opened. So really, I think it's, it's twofold. It's one, being able to share all those stories with her, but also I would love to just go through a day where she kind of grew up in Mexico and just walk through like show me as a, as a little girl, what were, what were your culinary experiences? What, mm-hmm. what did you eat? Where are your favorite places to go? What did, what did you crave on a daily basis? And just get to know her on, on a, on a food level in a way that unfortunately when I was a young kid, I never quite understood or appreciated. So that would be, I guess my, my answer would be going to all the different places that she grew up in, in her hometown of Mexico. And just, you know, like you said, from breakfast to dinner, dessert, you know, getting to experience that and everything in between. Is there a specific dish or recipe, you know, throughout that day you would want to, I guess, learn from her, or have her yes. show you? Her mole, her, <laughs> her mole, her mole negro was, was the best. You know, my, my dad, I I'm lucky I have my dad who can make a lot of her recipes just spot on because mm-hmm. he, you know, grew up eating her food. But that's the one thing that I'm like, dad, you just can't touch Abuelita's mole. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's grandma's mole. Like there's something that she would do that. I just, I can't put my finger on. I can't replicate. He can't replicate. And like I said, I, I'm spoiled because he's able to do just about everything. That's that one dish where I just like, oh, uh, like I believe that I wish I could just be in the kitchen with you one day just to learn your mole hmm. um, and just be like, you know, pen and paper just going, hold on, hold on, dude. Whoa, how much was that? You know, I'm just like, oh, mijo, it was, it was this. And it's like, let me see your hand. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me pull out my app. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that sounds like a wonderful food day. And I hope you figure out that mole recipe at yeah, some point. Thank you. thank you again for taking the time and, and best of luck in all of your future endeavors. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
You can watch Julian's episode of Crack and Egg with on foodnetwork.com. And make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. Friday. 